On June 12, 2009, the feds raided the homes of collectors Thomas Calvieri, Bill Schneck, Christopher Seltzer, and our very own Forrest Fenn. They saw artifacts that an undercover source had learned about during the course of a two and a half year long investigation into a looting syndicate in the Four Corner States. This was part of a large crackdown that led to 26 indictments. Two of the men implicated in the indictments committed suicide after the raids. We're going to look into this further, but first we need to know why Finn would be part of this raid. Forrest Fenn made his fortune as an art dealer in Santa Fe, New Mexico. The Santa Fe art scene is a specific world within a specific community. On this episode, we are going to explore just how Forrest Fenn made his money and earned enough to give validity to his claim that he buried a $2 million treasure somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. To kick this off, let's go back to 1986, when Fenn was living the life. Here are excerpts from an article published in that year in People magazine that profiled Fenn in his heyday, 24 years before he claims to have buried his treasure. Forrest Fenn is a Santa Fe, New Mexico art dealer with a bustling eight-room gallery. But one of his most prized acquisitions is a 36-inch alligator, Beowulf, who inhabits a pond on the gallery grounds. In artsy Santa Fe, riddled with some 110 galleries, Lots of folks think they detect a resemblance between Beowulf and his owner. It is an unkind comparison, no doubt the result of professional envy of a colleague who makes big waves and bigger bucks. The controversial and flamboyant Finn grosses about $6 million a year by flouting tradition. His collection may politely be called eclectic, a jumble of Indian artifacts and curios mixed with expensive paintings and bronzes. He openly sells forgeries of Modigliani, Monet, and Degas, and he gets good money for them to boot. Indignant colleagues grumble, but Finn doesn't snap like an alligator. He only smiles like one. He gets most of the celebrity collectors who come to town. When the rich visit Santa Fe, Finn scoops them up at the airport in his limo and lodges them free of charge in one of the houses. Jackie Onassis, former President Ford, and Cher are among those who have been pampered with catered meals, a jacuzzi, steam room, and a masseuse. Many, notably Steve Martin, have also bought art. One of Finn's repeat customers is Robert Redford, who collects Eric Sloan oils priced up to $15,000. Sam Shepard and Jessica Lange picked up Western art, and Steven Spielberg carted away a Charles Russell bronze. Finn encourages gallery browsing with signs that read, Please touch, we are responsible. Customers can handle any 2,000 Indian bowls, moccasins, and arrowheads. Big spenders might be drawn to a $375,000 painting that Corot signed on his deathbed, or a $350,000 Remington bronze. Finn's collection of fine fakes, owned in partnership with Texas ex-governor John Connolly, is the work of the late master forger Elmer DeHorey, who fooled many an expert in his time. But why sell phonies? Says Finn, quote, If you love it less when you see the signature, who now is the fake? End quote. That challenge has shamed buyers into taking 26 deoris so far at $9,500 a shot. Finn claims an inventory worth $20 million and presides over it all with a staff of 16 and a seemingly cavalier attitude. Quote, 
Does the guy at One Hour Martinizing love dirty clothes? Finn asks, knowing the answer full well. Does the guy selling used cars like clunkers? Art is a business, and what I love is the business. I'm not particularly into art. End quote. So why Santa Fe? Finn could have gone to many places to establish his business. So why choose an old southwestern town? Let's have a brief history lesson to understand why. Land of enchantment, and land where Spanish conquistadores and priests of 400 years ago went hungering and thirsting. For it was the Spaniards who blazed the first trail across New Mexico to the Indian Pueblo of Tique. And near its site sprang a clutter of old adobe huts, which was later to become known as the village of Santa Fe. Its age-old plaza marks the end of the most famous trail in Western history, that of the old Santa Fe. Santa Fe became an arts hub at the turn of the 20th century. Originally, it's where artists retreated to be inspired by the stunning blue skies and by the unique confluence of Spanish, Native American, and Anglo cultures. As soon as I saw it, that was my country. I'd never seen anything like it before, but it fitted to me exactly. It's something that's in the air. It's just different. The sky is different. The stars are different. The wind is different. This is Georgia O'Keeffe, the renowned artist, talking about why she moved to New Mexico, which spawned her most prolific creative period. Out of the tradition of this community of artists sprung a gallery culture that emphasized Native American subjects and themes. These galleries became immensely prominent in the 1970s and 1980s, which is when our friend Forrest Fenn made his fortune. To understand this world, I spoke to Mark Sublett, who has worked in the Southwestern art scene for decades as a gallery owner and knows Santa Fe. He even knows Forrest Fenn. Starting in about the mid-74, 75, there was a craze of Indian jewelry that really hit um, America. And part of this was, I think, was um, propelled by the... Uh, counterculture of the 60s, Native Americans and Indian arts were embraced, you know, as something that was, they, that uh, the youth of the day, which would have been me, were interested in. And In the early and mid-1970s, Native American culture and rights were at the forefront of the American psyche. For example, in 1972, Marlon Brando famously rejected the Oscar that he was awarded for his performance in The Godfather as a way to bring attention to the fight for Native American rights. Here's footage from the original broadcast of the Oscar ceremony that evening. The winner is... Marlon Brando in The Godfather. Accepting the award for Marlon Brando and the Godfather, Miss Shashin Littlefeather. Hello, my name is Sashin Littlefeather. I'm Apache and I'm president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening and he has asked me to tell you 
in a very long speech, which I cannot share with you presently because of time, but I will be glad to share with the press afterwards that he very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry, excuse me, and on television in movie reruns, and also with recent happenings at Wounded Knee. I beg at this time that I have not intruded upon this evening, and that we will, in the future, our hearts and our understandings will meet with love and generosity. Thank you on behalf of Marlon Brando. Mark theorizes that the gallery scene in Santa Fe, where Fenn became prominent, took off in the mid-70s because of the interest in Native American culture and a craze for Native American jewelry that saw countless celebrities, including even Elvis, wearing it. Everyone was interested in this kind of material. Everybody was coming to Santa Fe, and galleries like Forest Friends Gallery were you know, some of the first to go, oh, this is a great place to be. We'll come here. And, you know, Forrest was an Air Force uh, pilot, I believe, and he did Vietnam and all that. Like a lot of these, a lot of the people that have dealt in Native American art, they all had Vietnam as their thread that ran through them. They either went to Vietnam or somehow avoided Vietnam, but it affected them. And so that 74 to, you know, or 72 to probably late 80s was really a time frame of growth, and at that point, people are really starting to find out what Santa Fe is. Mark also pointed out that in the 70s and 80s, you had people coming of age that grew up on things like Gunsmoke and Bonanza, whose theme song you're hearing right now. These shows expose them to Native American cultures and arts, albeit very narrow and problematic versions of Native American arts and cultures. So these baby boomers probably came to Santa Fe out of some form of nostalgia. What I really wanted to know was how Finn marketed himself to such high-profile clientele. This guy was a former Air Force pilot who had admitted that he didn't really care about art. Yeah, sure. Well, one of the things that Forrest did was he recognized these Taos founders, the people I talked about that came into Taos early in 1898 and were there through the really through the 30s and 40s. And he recognized that these were important artists and had something to say. So he started to develop that market, and it took off quite quickly. Price structures went up high. You know, good timing, good taste, uh, all that kind of stuff added up to success, which it did. Despite not caring about art, Fenn sought out artists unique to New Mexico who had shown their work in other cities and developed relationships with them. He became a go-to stop for their work and exploited these relationships for profit, which is what any shrewd businessman would do. Mark also pointed out that Ben had the foresight to connect with the right people when he arrived in Santa Fe so that he could establish himself well. He also worked with individuals like Rex Aerosmith, who had been around in Santa Fe since 1959. Rex is this wonderful individual who had encyclopedic knowledge, knew all the artists, was a um, person 
of great ethics and, you know, associated himself and with Rex and they did a business together for a period of time. And I think that also helped for us be able to develop um, the business he did. Mark also had a lot of thoughts about what it takes to make it as an art dealer. I wanted to know because it would help me understand what kind of person Fenn was to make it in such a fickle business that's often shrouded in myth and mystery. Mark's answers seem to contradict what Forrest Fenn has stated about his chosen career path. I don't really think it matters what fields you go into. I just happen to pick art because it's what captured my heart and captured my imagination. And I also love history. And I'm sure for Forrest, it's probably the same thing. He, you know, he comes to Santa Fe and it's blowing up and it looks fantastic. He likes native art. He likes history. It's, you know, he's, it's a natural fit for him. And he has a good eye for art. I asked Mark the inevitable question. As an insider into the Santa Fe art world and a colleague of Fenn's, I wanted to know what he thought about the treasure. I think he just thought it would be an interesting and cool way to deal with um, his legacy, money that he can't take with him, and history. Now, some people would say, I don't believe the treasure's there. You know, That's the question. Did he actually bury or not? I mean, that's the real question. You know, uh, my my guess is, yeah, he probably did. <laughs> yeah, I could I I could totally see him do something like that. Um, but you know, no one knows, and Forrest isn't going to tell. And maybe it's one of those things you have to wait. And we we know the true story somewhere down the line. Uh, so now let's get back to the 2009 raids. Then traded in art and antiquities. Antiquities can be controversial and problematic, especially when you are dealing in Native American artifacts in the United States. To get perspective, I reached out to Dr. James Writing, who is an editor of the Wisconsin Saw Review, a journal of Native American studies, and is the interim director and associate professor of American Indian Studies in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at Arizona State University. Much of our conversation surrounded two different laws enacted in 1977 and 1990 that served to protect Native American burial sites and other rights. He advertised uh, um, having pre-Columbian Indian artifacts. So, you know, the, the chances of those items uh, from that time period coming from graves is pretty strong. And uh, the pro- one of the problems is that if if those acts were committed before those laws were put in place, then uh, he didn't commit any crime. So uh, um, some of those new newspaper accounts said that uh, if then uh, you know brought in pretty rich clientele, and that it was like a picnic type of uh, atmosphere, that they would go out uh, to this his land uh, that he had bought there in New Mexico. And um, uh, one would have to assume they might have been doing some uh, digging uh, into graves. So even if there wasn't laws in place, you wonder, you know, um, what's in a, a group of people's mentality that prevents them from recognizing the humanity of Indian people? And that any peoples do indeed, or should indeed, have a right to a lasting burial. Yeah, you have to call to question uh, 
what feeds that mentality? And um, why does it continue to exist? After this conversation, I was left feeling that Fenn most likely operated in a moral gray zone during his career. To be clear, Fenn was never charged in conjunction with the 2009 raid. Much of his work predated any legislation that would have protected Native American burial sites. However, I have to wonder about the timing of it all. The 2009 raid occurred less than six months before Fenn first published his treasure map poem. These two incidents may not be directly related, but I cannot help but assume that one may have impacted the other. The timing is just too close. The best guess anyone has made about why Fenn has buried the treasure was vocalized by Dr. Sublet. I think, given the evidence thus far, that Fenn is concerned about his legacy, and this is his way to secure one. Whether or not the treasure exists, I still haven't found enough evidence to prove it in a court of law, or even file a case. Where the Treasure Lies is written and hosted by me, Michael Figati. All of our music is original and composed by Josue Arias. Our producers are Blair Figati and Josue Arias. We have a special thanks to Christian Makoto Hancock. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This greatly helps others find us as well. Also, you can follow us on Instagram with our handle at Treasure Lies Podcast. And if you have any information about Force Fen or the treasure, slide into our DMs or email us at treasurepodcast at gmail.com. 